Images of Jesus, part 39. This is the first trial. Um, as Megan just read, we're in Mark chapter 14 tonight. Um, this is... Uh, you guys have know the drill. The, this, this whole series is pictures of Jesus. And I, I want us to come, come into... Come into grips, come let the focus of this particular image of Jesus to be profound in our in our minds tonight. So there's a there's an image of Jesus here and, and he is our model, and there's an image of Peter that we'll look at as well, and he is our reality. Peter's response and activity is is very much like, like ours, um, and and even hopefully like ours. At the end, Jesus or Peter is confronted with his sin and weeping. But the, the thing that I want to land on and have this theme over our heads as we walk through these, these series of verses tonight is that this is an image of grace. We talk about grace. We talk about all that it is. Uh, the stuff that we see Jesus doing tonight is grace in action. Uh, you've heard the definition of grace as something that we do not deserve. But the real definition of grace and the, the definition that goes a little further than that, and the definition that, that we see in action tonight is, is something that we cannot attain for ourselves. So tonight we see that grace. And before we get there, I'm going to read the lyrics, Amazing Grace, and let these just... Wash over your brain, and these are the things that, that paint what we, what I hope for us to, to think about tonight. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been here ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And it's it's this concept, that, and that song, you know, if... We were singing it and, and watching the, or, or feeling the, the emotion build up to that last verse that there's difficulties in this life, the many dangers, toils, and snares we walk through, but it's grace, something that we don't deserve, and more than that, something we can't attain for ourselves is ours to hold and to, to bask in. And it's, it's that grace, it's that concept that amazing grace brings into our mind that, that paints the picture, that is the image of Jesus that we see in these verses tonight. And, and I, I just want us to, to just watch grace happen. You hear that? Let's watch grace happen tonight because we're, we're going to see Jesus as our model and we're going to see Peter as our reality tonight. And that's grace. Peter in the midst of wallowing in his fear and wretchedness and sin, at that moment, Christ is grace. 
So uh, I want to set the scene. Mark does a great job of setting the scene in here in this gospel before he gets to the, the heart of what's happening. So to, to set the scene, I want to throw a, a, a map image up there. Dave, hit that map. Um, you've seen a similar map to this in, uh, in recent weeks. Up there in the top right-hand corner is the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where they, they were when they were praying, right? Uh, so they've just gotten finished praying, and they're, they're on their way walking to the... He's been arrested, and they're walking to the palace of the high priest. So that, that line coming from the Garden of Gethsemane, you see there where those arrows kind of coming in and go is a gate to the city, and so they, they walk into the palace of the high priest. That's the, the path that they take. The first few verses are... Uh, them walking along, and they wind up at the palace of the high priest, which is where the everything happens. You see the rest of the stuff, the stuff that's numbered there, three, four, and five, and then six. That's the stuff that's happening in the, the preceding verses that we won't get to tonight. But this image is there for us to, to have sort of an understanding of, of what's happening and where we are. Maybe about a quarter mile walk, they walk from the Garden of Gethsemane to this palace where, uh, where this event takes place. And Mark kind of sets that scene in the first few verses that we see tonight. Um, but there is, uh, as you, you heard Megan read, there, are, uh, there were false testimonies, there were conflicting testimonies that were happening, but more stuff was going on. Uh, I want to bring three very specific illegalities of the events that took place that we read here in Mark 14. Um, these are, are Jewish laws, and these are laws that are, are put in force and unbreakable, and if they are the... The, the, the accused, the criminal, is uh, able to go free if these things are, are happening. First, no, uh, no trials, no uh, court hearings were to be heard at night. And this is the middle of the night when this is happening. Uh, probably midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning when, when this stuff is happening. Uh, so they, they're breaking the law by holding this trial at night. Secondly, uh, any trial that's happening isn't, doesn't happen in palaces. It happens in, in the temple. Uh, go back to that, that slide, Dave, if you would, uh, the, the map. You see the, the temple in the upper right. This is where this should have happened. And been told and, and known about if he wanted to attend this, this hearing would have come here. Because it should have been in the daytime, and it should have been in that temple. But these people are so worried and so scared. The, these leaders, these Pharisees are so worried and scared about the power of Jesus and about the people's following of Jesus, that they need to do this in the, under the cover of night and quickly and illegally so that they can make this happen. Because remember, this, the Jews are, are being repressed by the Romans. They can only do what the Romans give them authority to do. So if there's this uprising that's happening, if there's difficulty that's happening, the Romans are just going to squash it and say, okay, that's it, we're going to squash all of you. So the Jews got to be these the smart religious leaders have to be very careful and very smart and very cunning to make this happen. They've got to get Jesus away, and they've got to do it in such a way as to not make a whole lot of people angry because then that's going to make the Romans angry and make them, everybody's going to lose their power and it's going to be good for nobody. Thirdly, the third thing, uh, the illegality, is no capital offenses can be heard during the Passover week. Remember the Passover, the biggest, it's Easter and Christmas for us, rolled up into one holiday. It's the Passover. It lasts a whole week long. That's what they were celebrating in the upper room when they had the Last Supper. They're celebrating the Passover, and it's a week long. No capital offenses can be heard during this week because it's a big time of celebration. So we're not going to decide whether or not we're going to 
execute somebody for a crime they committed during this celebratory week. So those three major things, if you break any one of those laws, the criminal, the accused, is in danger of being able to go free. But they broke all three of them, and nobody cares. Uh, so that's the, that's the setup of what's happening. Now I want to get into this image of Jesus and this image of, of Peter that we see. Uh, and, and we'll think and through uh, the perspectives of both of these guys. So first, uh, the perspective of Jesus. Four things to note about Jesus' perspective. First is his quiet confidence. In verses 60 through 62, it says this, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the son of of, are you the Christ, Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Uh, this is, this is a, a response, an answer to a prophecy that was told in Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And as I studied this this week, I asked myself, why is Jesus so calm? There's people lying about him, the the false testimony that's happening, the conflicting testimony that's happening, and all the illegalities that I just talked about, and it's in the middle of the night, and everybody's tired and angry, and and it's a a chaotic, crazy atmosphere. Everyone is tense. Everyone is hyper, but Jesus. He is calm and silent. Why? It's because Jesus. He knows something that nobody else in the world knows. In this moment, everybody has no idea what's happening. But Jesus, fully aware, fully confident. You ever been in a place where somebody knows what's going to happen and nobody else does? Everybody else is intense. That person is always really, really calm. That's Christ here. It is the grace of God in action. This is... God placing his love within our reach. These people going nuts, breaking the law to execute Christ, and Christ is silent. This is that Romans 5 eight. God demonstrating his love, placing his love within our reach, placing his grace within our reach. This is that sunisteo word that we've talked about before. God placing his love within our reach. It's his redemption plan in motion. Jesus here, even in the midst of these illegalities and, and these lying people who want to kill him, Christ is in complete control of everything, including his emotion. In us, for us, when we are consumed in our moments, difficulties in sin and evil in this world, disease, hardship, broken relationships, the, we, we talked on Saturday morning, the, the guys got together for our men's ministry, and we talked about the stuff that is bringing pressure and intensity into our lives, and, and how do we respond to that, and, and how do we respond to sin that crouches in on us? How do we respond when, when we sin, when we're sinned against? That, that happens all the time. We are consumed with our moments of difficulties all the time, and we talked about it on Saturday morning, and we, we it, I think it's easy for us to really connect with that when, when sin crouches on us or when difficulties of this world crouch on us. Reflect in those moments and, and here tonight, reflect on those moments and, and see Christ here in his quiet, confident perspective because he knows something 
that nobody else knows. Grace is yours. Quiet confidence is yours. But it's grace in action here. Jesus is pressed by sin, but he knows that this is the plan. This is how it's all supposed to work out. Jesus is also resolute. In verses 64 and 65, it says this, And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is the all-powerful God of the universe being spit on and punched and slapped and just altogether punked. See the grace and see the humility in his resolute perspective. His resolve is born in the fact that Jesus knows something that his captors and his the people that are slapping him and punching him and abandoning him, he knows something that they don't know. God is in control of all of the offense that are taking place on this night. And, and think about We have difficulties in our life. We will never encounter the difficulties that Christ is encountering in these moments we're reading about here. Completely alone. I've thanked God many times in the last three years and the difficulties of planting a church and all that. I've thanked God many times for the fact that I have a bride to walk alongside me. And I know whatever happens, I'm going to have her next to me. Christ is abandoned completely. He has poured his life for three years into 12 guys. They're gone. And now these people are lying about him, trying to kill him, mocking him, spitting on him, punching him. Jesus, in the midst of all of that, is resolved because this is the plan, this is the purpose. For us, in the midst of sin and difficulty and disease and turmoil and just life pressing in us, this is the model. Life is about watching Christ diving into a scripture, having him reveal himself to our hearts so that we can be more like him. This is the purpose of this Images of Jesus series so that we can look at Jesus and watch him model life for us. Never before throughout all of, all of this book, all of this series, has it been more profound for us to see the picture of Christ. Resolute to continue on his mission in the face of great sin, in the face of great hardship, in the face of, of loneliness, in the face of abandonment, in the face of all these things. Christ is resolute. We have to, to connect with that. I know a lot about all the stories that are happening in life around the people that are in this room, and there's difficulty everywhere. Our model is Christ, and never before is it more clear and more beautiful than it is here because it is grace in action. Jesus here is resolute. Jesus also's focused is eternal. Hebrews 12.2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. In other words, Jesus is our model. What I've been saying. He's the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
this verse brings the confident, eternal perspective of Jesus into our minds. I want to think about two specific verses. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Think about that. Jesus endured the cross because at the other side of the cross is joy. Joy with, that comes with, with a relationship with the Father. The difficulties of our life on the other side is joy. Jesus didn't concern himself with the difficulties of the present situation because his goal, his aim, was finishing the work, finishing the plan, and enjoying, basking in the joy that was set before him. But the, the, the second phrase that is vital for us to come to grips with is this despising the shame. This word despising literally means to think little of or nothing of. Jesus is being lied about and punked and destroyed and just everything miserable is happening to him. And this is just the the beginning. The cross is coming where his shoulders will be dislocated and he'll be nailed to the cross and he will suffocate in his own blood and bodily liquid. They'll fill up his lungs and he will suffocate. And in that moment, sin will be upon him and for the first time in eternity will be separated from God. Christ thought nothing of that. He despised the shame of the cross. That word despise in the Greek is to think little of or nothing of. That is our model. Take that concept, despising the shame of the difficulties of your life because of the joy that's set before you. Man, there's got to be courage there. It's got to make you rise up and be resolute to be confident, to, to go on your mission, to be eternally focused, to look beyond the present tense to the future tense, despising the shame. I, I'm, in that, that video that we saw, there's, there's an image of a Haitian guy with rubble around him standing above the rubble. And, and his image is one, that's it. And, and that's the picture that Christ is, is portraying for us here. His, the world is in shambles around him. Destruction is, is evident around him. But he remains eternally focused, resolute, and confident. Worshipping like that Haitian who probably had dead, at least people that he went to church with, probably relatives, under his feet. And there he stands, worshiping. There's, a, there's another video that's it's on the church's, uh, Helping Churches website, and it's on YouTube. It's, it's a, a couple of pastors. Mark Driscoll's one of them, and James McDonald is another. Um, and they're, they're in Haiti uh, looking at the damage, and, and they say that you can, you can taste the decomp of the bodies in the rubble of these churches. And I, I hear those two guys say that. Then I take this picture of this guy standing on the rubble, worshiping Christ, tasting. The smell is so profound and so grotesque that he's tasting the decomp of the bodies at his feet. And his response is worship. That's a picture of Christ. It's beautiful. And we have to see that. That is our, 
are modeled. That's what Jesus, the image of Jesus that we see here tonight. But the last thing is Jesus, the image of Jesus, the perspective of Jesus is obedient. Jesus has an obedient perspective. Philippians 2, 8 and 9. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed Him the name that is above every name. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Let me say this. Your acceptance is not contingent upon anything other than the the finished work, the unending grace that we're talking about tonight. Your acceptance is not dependent upon anything other than what we're talking about. Jesus Christ, dead, on the cross, resurrected. That is a finished work. Your acceptance is, is reliant upon nothing but that. But, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. There is a blessing that comes from obedience. And when I say blessing that comes from obedience, I'm not talking about our acceptance. I'm not talking about walking down a sidewalk and finding 20 bucks. I'm talking about a blessing that comes from relationship with a perfect and holy God. There is a depth of knowledge and relationship with the Lord that comes from this sort of blessing. And get your Western culture, 20th century understanding of blessing out of your mind and understand that the death of people, the difficulty of people, stuff in this world can become a blessing when it results in knowledge of our God. That is the heart of what I'm talking about. This notion paints one of our values. You know our our values are truth, people, God. This is from our website. This understanding that depth of knowledge, depth of relationship, of knowing who God is, is a value of ours, and it paints our notion. This is the purpose, the reason that, that these words were written. We will value God. When God is valued, each moment is seized as an opportunity to know God. When God is valued, worship happens in line at a grocery store, in a church, as you get your kids ready for school, at 1.30 in the morning when you can't sleep. When God is valued, events and circumstances pale in light of His Surpassing value. Great things are greater and terrible things are not terrible. When God is valued, life tastes better. That's the, the, one of the, the things that we value and it's deep knowledge and relationship with this perfect and holy God. And Jesus here, His obedience on the cross is bringing that sort of relationship, that sort of knowledge that we so value. And so if we value relationship with God because of these things that that are there on the screen, if we value relationship for those reasons, then the difficulties of this life that bring knowledge of God are blessing to us. They change our mind. They change our heart. They change who we are. Because we come into a greater knowledge of who He is. Because the 70 years or whatever that we get to spend on this planet are but a blip in the grand scheme of eternity. But knowledge of God is of surpassing value. Knowledge of God makes us despise the shame that's in our lives. 
makes us understand that God is to be valued. That's the perspective of Jesus. Now, the perspective of Peter. That's our model. Jesus is our model. This is our reality. This is who we are. This is who you are. This is who I am. Fear. The perspective of Peter foremost here is fear. Verses 66 through 71. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest, this girl's probably 14. This 14-year-old servant of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were with him, the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you mean. He's afraid of a 14-year-old girl. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to evoke a curse on himself. This curse that he's speaking on himself is to declare oneself liable to the most severe divine penalty. Jesus, Peter is saying, I give myself the most severe divine penalty if I know this guy. I, I don't. Leave me alone. I don't know this guy. Verse 71. He began to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. Do you see Peter giving more respect and fear to this servant girl than he does to Jesus. The evil of this world presses in on him and he loses sight of Jesus. It's because he doesn't know what Jesus knows. He doesn't know the plan. Evil presses in on him and he loses sight of Christ. Again, Jesus was our, in, the, in this picture is our model. Peter is our reality when the world presses in on us these are usually our responses secondly peter is in the moment the pressures and difficulty of the moment don't allow us to have an eternal perspective as jesus did we don't know the glory that awaits us we don't know the joy that is set before us we don't know what jesus knew when he was being beaten and mocked by these people we don't know that we have in heaven something that can't perish spoil or fade i want to contrast Peter here in these moments with Peter that wrote his epistle. Peter said, we are strangers and aliens in this world. We are strangers here. We, this, this isn't where we're supposed to be. We are pressed in. We are crushed. But Peter says, our trials have come. These difficulties have come so that our faith can be of greater worth than gold, which perishes even when it's refined by fire that we can know and understand what we have in store for us. Something that will not perish, will not spoil, or will not fade. This Peter, here in the midst of this discussion, here is running away. But later he will say, we have a hope that can't perish, spoil, or fade. This is who we are. Jesus works on us and changes us, perfects us, and makes us more like Him. We have it in us to be focused to be flesh-focused and flesh-led. We also have it in us to be eternally focused and spiritually led. Peter here is flesh-focused and worldly-led. Later, as he writes his epistle, he is spirit-led and eternally focused. What else about Peter? He is also self-seeking. 
William Lane, a commentator that, uh, that Dave and I read as we prepare these messages, says this, Peter's unfaithfulness to the person of Jesus expressed anxiety for his own safety and the determination to seek approval from bystanders rather than from the Lord. Jesus is seeking approval from 14-year-old girls and people standing around a fire rather than from Jesus himself. This is our reality. This is who we are. We seek approval around us rather than from Christ. But Peter grew from that. Acts 4, 8-10. This same guy, about two months later, who was running away, running away from 14-year-old girls, scared of them more than Christ, says this, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, the them that he's talking about are the same people that are gathered around lying about Jesus and, and having all these illegal trials. These same people who sentenced and executed Christ, the Sanhedrin, are the same ones that Peter is talking to now. The, growth, the two-month growth of Peter. He says to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, before in Acts chapter 4, there was a, a man in front of the temple and they healed him and they, everybody got all upset. They healed this man. That's what Peter is referencing here. By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you. Meaning, let it be known to all you guys who just killed Jesus two months ago. And to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. In our story in Mark, Peter is self-serving, scared. In our story here in Acts, Peter is serving this crippled man. He is, in fact, serving these people, being confrontational with them, presenting them with the, the cross of Jesus Christ. You crucified him, you killed him, this guy stands here healed because of that man. We have it in us to be self-seeking and flesh-led. We have it in us to be Christ-seeking and Spirit-led. The last thing that I want us to, to, to see in this example of Peter. He is aware of his sin. Mark 14.72 And immediately the roaster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. I want to think for a second about our sin. Peter here, his sin is so profound that he breaks down and weeps. But the, the beautiful picture is this failure of Peter in this moment didn't make Christ hesitate for a moment. He is the picture of grace here. We connect with that in the midst of our wretched, putrid lives filled with sin. Jesus hesitates not. 2 Corinthians 5.21 one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture there is. For our sake, He made Him 
to be sin who knew no sin. So that we might become the righteousness of God. One of the greatest things that Jesus can do for you is to bring you into an encounter with a knowledge of your sin. Just like Peter here. He remembers, Jesus said, I'm going to deny him three times Well, the rooster crows twice. Wow. And he's, he's confronted with his sin. And his response is brokenness and weeping. But later, Peter rises, like I just spoke about, and goes before the Sanhedrin, and, and he, he teaches through his epistle that we have an inheritance that can't perish, spoil or fade. He is confronted with his sin, and Jesus uses that and changes him and shows him the beauty of his grace. And it's his grace that brings about obedience to, to be able to, to be this Christ-seeking, spirit-led man. And he is made aware of his sin, and it's a blessing. Not finding $20 on a sidewalk blessing, but this understanding of the value of knowledge of God. Would God bring us into an encounter with our sin? Because the result of that is Christ-honoring and God-honoring when we swim in the grace of God. We get a chance in a minute to respond and swim in the grace of God. We get a chance to respond to give our tithes and our offerings and a chance to, to give to this relief effort in Haiti. And I, I want to share something that, that we have been doing for a while. Uh, you may not know this, but we give uh, a portion of, of money of the tithes and offerings that we collect every week to, uh, to the, Missouri and, and the Missouri Baptist Convention and the Southern Baptist Convention. Part of that money, we've given just short of two grand uh, to relief efforts that are happening right now. You might not know that, but money that you've given in the three years in the history of this church, has been going there and for disaster relief training, and there are people on the ground who are supported by us. We, we need to, to know that. And as we respond tonight, I want us to, to connect with all of these things, this, most of all, this image of grace in action. Let's pray. Perfect God, Holy Father, You are amazing. Your grace is amazing. God, be with us as we respond to what You've spoken to our hearts tonight. Allow us to rest and swim in Your grace something that we not only don't deserve, Father, but cannot attain. God, confront us with our sin. Confront us when we are as Peter is. More concerned about what's happening in our lives. More fearful of the people around us than of you. God, confront us with our sin and change us with it, Father. 
God, guide us. Guide us to places of response that are honoring to you, Father. And that bring us to a place like that Haitian man, Father. Tasting the decomp, Father. Tasting the wretchedness of our sin. And worshiping you in those moments, God. Oh, your grace is perfect. It's beautiful. Thank you for Jesus. And his death and his resurrection. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.